Uh, I love a good plot, a narrative, uh, a story that will take me on a journey. Now, good stories, good narratives have certain common features. Uh, most can be divided into three parts. Uh, those of you who are parents with primary school age kids will know about narratives. Uh, they have an orientation, they have a complication, and they have a resolution. Good stories have all of those things. It doesn't matter whether it's a nursery rhyme, a movie, a romance, a fable, a novel, an opera, a country and western song, even a limerick. They all have those three parts. Uh, let me explain what I mean. An orientation sets the scene. Uh, it introduces you to the characters, the setting, it puts you in the story. For example, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. That's an orientation. Uh, then there's the complication. That's what happens in the story. The complication presents a problem to be fixed, a puzzle to be solved, a situation that needs putting right. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. That's the complication. And finally we come to the resolution, how the problem is solved, the happy ending, the bit we all like. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Well, in this case, it's not much of a resolution, is it really? Because Humpty is stuck at the bottom of the wall, a sticky, broken mess. But it's the end. It's the end of the story. There's a resolution, which we love. A good story has to have a resolution. It's why we binge watch whole seasons, isn't it? Our favourite show, uh, ten episodes in a row. Because they, have, they often finish each episode on a cliffhanger, uh, on a complication, uh, but no resolution. And so what do you do? You, the resolution comes at the start of the next episode and so you watch one more and then you watch one more and before you know it, it's midnight and you've only got two episodes to go. And We love resolutions. We're, we're inbuilt to want them. And I think as we skim through these first six chapters of Ezra, we can see this same threefold structure. The orientation. God's people stuck in Babylon. Cyrus says they can return to build the temple. They go there, they begin to build. Chapters 1 to 3. But then, chapter 4, there's the complication. Enemies stop the work. It's actually 16 years the work stops. Will it ever get finished? But then we come to the resolution. Chapter 5, God steps in. His prophets speak a word and work recommences and then chapter 6 the temple's finished and the people celebrate. It's a resolution, a happy ending. Or is it? Because we're only six chapters into the book of Ezra. Forget the book of Nehemiah, we're, we're only a quarter of a way through the story. And all we've really got is a temple. If we actually look around the temple, if we actually zoom back and we see a bigger picture, we see no walls, no city, no king, no nation. So perhaps our first six chapters are more like the first episode of a miniseries. There's a sort of a resolution, but there's much more to the story. Now that's the sort of perspective we have to read when we're reading the Old Testament at all, when we're reading it with Christian eyes, because it's really only part A of the full story. This fulfilment of God's promise was always destined to fail, this temple, because God had planned something much greater, a better temple, a better dwelling, a better bringing of God's people together. And that would take another 500 years 
at least to begin, when Jesus came. So with all that in mind, let's turn to the story itself. Firstly, we begin with the orientation. Chapter 1, verse 1. I hope you've got your Bibles open. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. That tells us the when. But it also hints to the where and the why. Israel stuck in Babylon, conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, exiled there 70 years previously. The books of Kings and Chronicles tell that story. But then Persia conquers Babylon and Cyrus takes the throne. The book of Daniel covers that story for us. God hasn't forgotten them. Exiled, reconquered. Let's read on. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfil the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. Uh, Two distinct actions. God makes a promise, then later he fulfils that promise. Years earlier, he promised Jeremiah chapter 29 uh, his people had been in Babylon already for years uh, and they were beginning to get impatient, discontent, uh, wondering what God was doing and here's what God says to them. Uh, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, Plant gardens and eat what they produce. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfil my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Just in case you're wondering, there's the context for that promise that seems to be used in all sorts of situations. So just keep that in mind. Those are the plans to bring his people back to the land. So God is saying through Jeremiah, be content, be patient, I will do it. And now, 70 years later, he begins to deliver on that promise. He works in the heart of King Cyrus, a foreign king, probably not a believer, But he decrees, verse 2, that any Jews who want to can return home and rebuild their temple. From what we know from other historical sources, there were probably other nations he he ruled over that he made a similar decree to. And so there were probably multiple uh, temples being built around the place. We don't know at a human level the political forces, the human forces behind his decision... But what we do know is that God is ultimately responsible. God moves the heart of Cyrus. So verse 4, we uh, have a look. Cyrus tells the Babylonian neighbours to chip in and give the Jews some going away presents. (laughs) And they do, verse 6. Verse 7, Cyrus even throws in the temple vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had pinched uh, years earlier. But God's not not just working in the heart of Cyrus. Verse 5, he works in the heart of his people as well. And so many of them uh, uh, uproot their lives and return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Chapter 2 lists all of them and there's a particular interest in those connected to the temple. So within a few months, they're back, they start work. Jump down to chapter 3. They begin with the altar. No sooner have they built it than they offer sacrifices on the altar. At least to begin with, they're getting their priorities straight. They're recognising that God's been at work. And so they want to thank him for keeping his promises and for working behind the scenes to make all of it happen. 
And then chapter 3, verse 7, they begin on the temple itself. And by the end of chapter 3, they've finished the foundations and they stop for a huge celebration. There's the orientation. But chapter 4, we come to the complication. Palestine wasn't empty. Canaan wasn't empty when the Jews arrived back. They already had a people living there, the Canaanites. Now they didn't appreciate the Jews arriving back. And so they try every trick in the book. Uh, Firstly, verse 1 and 2, deception, the underhand technique. They say, let us help. Uh, We worship God, we'll help you build your temple. Uh, They're attacking from the inside. Maybe they they want to sabotage the work, you know, do some dodgy workmanship so it might fall down. But the elders, verse 3, they say, they see right through that. No, thank you, we'll look after it ourselves. And so when that doesn't work, verse 4, they try scare tactics, a more direct approach. There are threats. And then verse 5, they they bring in the professionals. They hire consultants. (laughs) That's always bound to stop the work, isn't it? They try to convince them how to stop, uh, convince them to stop. And we're told this, this went on for the entire reign of Cyrus and then that of his successor, Darius. Uh, Now, verses 6 to 23, it's a little bit confusing, but it's it's pretty obviously a hundred years later. And uh, it's uh, it's two letters that the author found, and he said, here's the type of thing that went on this whole period of time. Uh, Letters sent back and forth trying to stop the work. So, verse 24 resumes the story in the present, and it it describes the effect that this... uh, the pressure had. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now that's something like 16 years later. 16 years, all the way through Cyrus, the work stalls at the foundation level. I don't know whether you ever, there's a house that you drive past or a building you drive past and it just seems to have got stuck there for years. There was one we used to drive past in the eventually the timbers went all grey, it got, the roof wasn't on, and I thought, oh. Eventually it got built, and I thought, I'm glad I'm not buying that one. I wonder if the people who bought it realise what's behind the, the brickwork. You know, what, what makes buildings stop? And so we come to the end of part two of the narrative, the complication. Will it ever get finished? Well, verse, uh, chapter five, we come to the resolution. God steps in again. He does it through his prophets. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now Haggai the prophet, Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, son of uh, Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Work starts doesn't seem like there's been any official change in foreign policy, in, in official policy. doesn't seem like the opposition's any less than it has been for the previous 16 years, but something changed. It's worth looking at what Haggai and Zechariah actually preached, and uh, uh, fortuitously we have those books in, in the Old Testament for us. Now, both of these books, Haggai and Zechariah, are a kick in the pants to a people who've gone grown complacent and comfortable. For people for whom God's, uh, God has descended, has gone down their list of priorities. Uh, it, they are strong encouragements to people whose priorities are, are back to front. 
they, who forgot what they knew when they first arrived, when they, they started with the altar. They'd forgotten to put God first. Uh, listen to the, word, to the rebuke that Haggai gives them. I've got it up there on the screen for you. Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. He doesn't mince words straight into it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Chapter 1 verse 2. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. What's the hurry? There's plenty of time. You, you don't want to rush these things. You, you want to make sure you consider it and don't rush into it. That's what they're saying. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. They've spent 16 years focusing on their houses, their families, their careers, their farms, and God has slipped further and further down the priority list and God won't put up with it anymore. And we do a similar thing, don't we? We say, I'll just get through this study. I'll just wait till the kids are older. I'll just wait till my career's established. I'll wait till I get the promotion. Then I'll put God first. Well, Joshua and Zerubbabel obey. They restart. But uh, after things being stalled for so long, the renewed work attracts official attention. The Persian governor, his officials, come around asking questions. Chapter 5, verse 3. Who authorised you to rebuild this temple? It's the council. The council inspectors have turned up. They've noticed work. Your neighbours have reported you. They're slapping it. They want to issue a stop work order. The people haven't got the right paperwork. But it doesn't stop. Look at verse 5. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. <laughs> so they get interim approval to continue until we find out for sure. Now luckily it's not just sending off an email and getting a reply the same day. This is going to take months or years. God is at work. And then we get a copy of the actual letter that the governor sends to Darius back in, in, uh, in Susa, describing the situation, describing what the Jews had told him about the original command and then suggesting Darius search his records. And then in chapter 6, we get a copy of Darius's reply. Uh, the records are checked. They find out, they find a memo about what Cyrus originally decreed, which is fascinating, isn't it, when you think about how many years have gone past. And uh, in his letter, he commands the governor, uh, verse 6 of chapter 6, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Uh, let, the governors, let the governors of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Now, if that had been all that happened, it would have been a major victory, wouldn't it? We can, they'll just stay away and we can do our own thing. But it gets even better. Did you see that, verse 8? Moreover, but wait, there's more. I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans so that the work will not stop. 
whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine and oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given to them daily without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. <laughs> so not only does the governor stay out of the way, but he's actually to pay for the whole thing and the sacrifices that go with it. And so before long, the temple's finished. From verse 13, we get this description of a tremendous celebration that follows. A Passover party full of joy, but also laughter, just sort of incredible laughter. Can you believe how much better God worked things out than we could have even hoped for? Staggering. Can't believe it. It's like what Paul says in Ephesians 3. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. I couldn't even imagine God would do this. But he has, according to his power that's at work within us. And then chapter 6 finishes with the summary in verse 22. The seven days they celebrated with joy the feast of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God. And so we come to what seems to be a resolution, don't we? It's a classic narrative. Orientation, complication, resolution. And so you can imagine Jewish families down through history sitting around the table. Dad pulls out uh, the writings and he reads this story and they all praise God and rejoice. Uh, Or is it? As I mentioned earlier, is this really the resolution that we uh, are searching for? Is this really a happily ever after? I reckon built into the narrative itself there are hints that we should be looking for something more that there are more episodes to follow, that we should reserve judgment on our happy ending. For a start, we're only at chapter 6. We've still got 7 to 10 and then the whole book of Nehemiah. But if we zoom the camera back from this happy scene of the temple, we see things are not quite so rosy. There's still only a remnant of God's people. There are plenty of Jews still in Babylon or, or scattered throughout the nations. And it's only a temple, it's only one building. There's no city, there are no walls. And it's not even much of a temple. It hardly compares to Solomon's temple. Chapter 3, verse 12, we read, Many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who'd seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. (laughs) It's only a shadow of the Solomon's temple. It's a shed. There's no army, there's no king, there's no nation, there's still slaves under Persian rule. And, and on top of that, if you know anything at all about the Israelites, you'll know that no matter how good they've got it, it doesn't take long before they mess it up, <laughs> before they sin and false, follow false idols and they grumble and they ignore God. But perhaps the greatest shadow is not any of those things, The greatest question mark to the happy ending is the sheer extravagance of what God has promised up to this point. God has promised so much that that this little temple, well, it just doesn't compare to the size of the promises. So so like, for example, what God promised uh, through Haggai. We we read a little bit of Haggai chapter 1 
Haggai chapter 2, listen to what God promises the people who are stuck, oh sorry, who are in the land but are not building the temple. Uh, Haggai chapter 2, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, to the remnant of the people, ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. Uh, this is what I covenanted to you. Uh, this is what I covenanted to you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. The promise from God is, is a temple that would be even greater than Solomon's. A temple that the nations would flock to. A temple where peace would be granted and glory would be seen. And this little shed hardly seems to compare. There has to be something more. And I think the people of Israel would have been looking for something more as the decades and the centuries followed for another 400 years until God sends Jesus and Jesus comes to visit this same temple building although now extended and renovated by King Herod and Jesus arrives in the temple and he judges it and he replaces it and he says outdated, outmoded updated, I'm here. The one who is the true temple, the true presence and glory of God who dwells, the true desire of nations, the one who draws the nations to himself and unites them, the one who brings peace. And so this narrative that finishes here in, in Ezra chapter 6, it, it is a wonderful tale of God's promises and God's power, but it's only a start. It's only a, a minor resolution, I'd suggest. It's going to take Jesus to bring the resolution. And even now, with the arrival of Jesus, there is more to come, isn't there? We're still not a final resolution. There is more to come. And so we need that resolution, that God's promises and God's power are at work and are still at work and he will bring resolution. He has brought resolution, he will. Uh, we need that reassurance for us as we look around us. We, we wonder, uh, are we enough? Uh, what will God do among us? Will he build us? Uh, will he bring people to know him? Will he grow people to maturity? Or as we step back a bit and we look at the, the, the church in Australia seems to be shrinking, more churches are closing than opening as we fail to be outward looking and bold, as we see secularism growing, 
we need to be reminded that God is at work. His word and his power are still reliable and certain. He is working out his plans if we trust him, if we pray, if we step out boldly. Will we do that? Will we trust him? Will we pray that he'll be active and powerful? I want to finish with uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, which is often quoted or misquoted. Uh, even though God spoke it to his people Israel in Babylon, that he was going to take them back to Israel, it's still true for us, isn't it? Uh, God's plans are, are different for us than they were for Israel at that specific point in time, but he is still a God who, who plans and protects rather than harms uh, and who seeks for us to trust him. So let me finish with these words. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that you don't leave us to to stumble, to uh, find our own way, uh, but you'll consistently hold us, call us, uh, command us, Uh, to put you first, to seek your kingdom uh, first, uh, rather than to worry about the other things that occupy our minds. Uh, We pray, well, we thank you for Jesus, uh, in whom we meet you, in whom we can find peace, Jesus, the King of the nations. Uh, We pray that uh, you would help us to put him first, help us to be dependent on you, And we pray that you would build your church as we do those things. Amen.